0: Well, friends, it is an especially rich joy for me to invite you today to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 8. That's partly because of how excited I am to be in Psalm 8 this morning, but it's mostly because of how excited I am to be back home with you guys. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, I hope you'll just spare me a moment of personal indulgence while I say thank you to this beloved church that gave our family an incredible break. A sabbatical for a month in an unbelievably beautiful place to do work that was so rewarding to do and to get so much more family time together than we're used to. It was a gift from the Lord through you that we are just deeply, inexpressibly grateful for, though we're all eager to do our best to put words to what we can't really put words to if you give us half a chance. So feel free to come and talk to us about the trip, to ask us how it went so that we can try to tell you how grateful we are to have had this chance to be be abroad for a time. For now, I just want to say that as thankful as we were for the opportunity, uh, as incredible a gift as it was to be able to go and to, to work with some space. And to have this experience as a family, uh, it's nothing compared to the incredible gift of having this place and this people to come home to. Uh, there is nowhere in the world I'd rather be uh, than standing right here on this spot, surrounded by all of you, you people that I love, uh, opening up God's Word together again on a Sunday. Well, let's do it. Psalm 8 is where we're going to be this morning. This is, uh, this is the first of a four-week series in the Psalms that we've planned as a little bit of an after-dinner mint, if you will, or maybe a bit of dessert for the series in Genesis that took up much of our spring together. That was a series about what it means to be human. This will be just a short summer series from Psalms that celebrate what it is to be human, that, that offer praise to God based on who God made us to be and how he made us to function. Psalm 8 is the most foundational of all of them, and we're going to start here for that very good reason. There are very few things, friends, that are so important for you to know for life in this world as knowing yourself. Let me say it again. There there are very few things so important for you to know for life in this world as knowing yourself. Uh, One weekend while we were away in the UK on this trip, uh, we decided to brave the backwards roads and cars, hired a car, that's how they put it, and went on an amazing road trip down to the southern coast of England in a place called Dorset with lots of amazing cliffs and ruined castles and all the stuff that you'd imagine. But I, I was the driver, so... I made my way over to this rental car facility. I navigated all of the paperwork. I went out to see the little hatchback that had been assigned to me. And I took, I don't even know how much time, just sitting there in the seat, getting used to this vehicle. I took time to figure out what all the buttons were and what the switches did, what it was going to be like to shift gears with my left hand. Where the pedals were, they're all in the same places that they ought to be, even though the the gear shift is on the wrong side, in case you were wondering. And then when I eased out of the parking lot, you know, in addition to trying to figure out how to drive a stick again, because it had been a while, uh, I I took my time on the roads at first. How much space do I need to give to make a turn without hitting somebody who's parked on the street? Because my brain's not used to this side of the road. What are the actual traffic laws here? Because these signs don't look familiar to me. Uh, I, I had to figure out how, how much get up do I have in this car? If I need to pull out in front of an oncoming bus, or if I need to try to pass somebody on a little country road, how much power can I expect? I had to figure that out. You need to know yourself, kind of like I needed to know that car. When you think about your life as a, as a journey. You might think about yourself as a kind of vehicle. If your life is a kind of journey and you only live once and you can only live as you, you need to know who you are. You need to know what you are. You need to know what, you, what kind of capacities you have, what you ought to expect from yourself and from the world you live in. You need to know yourself if you want to live a good life. And that's not a uniquely Christian insight. Philosophers have been saying that They've been all over it for thousands of years. But, but what is uniquely Christian is if you want to know yourself, the Bible's super clear about this, if you want to know yourself, which is so important for you to live well in the world, then actually you can't begin with yourself at all. You've got to begin with the Lord. You've got to begin with what the Bible describes as the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to know you, you can't start with you. You have to start with him. And in Psalm 8, David takes that principle that's in the, Psal- in the Proverbs and all through the Bible and makes it the theme of his song. Psalm 8 is maybe, aside from Genesis chapters 1 to 3 that we looked at earlier this year, Psalm 8 is maybe the most important, most foundational passage in all the Bible about what it means to be human. And at the core of Psalm 8, at the core of this message this morning, one simple Truth. True self knowledge begins and ends with worship. A true self knowledge begins and ends with worship. That's the really simple idea I want to show you from how David very simply lays it out for us in this psalm. I want to begin by reading Psalm 8 for you. If you've found the passage, may I invite you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read? I'm going to read. Beginning in verse 1, read to the end of the psalm. This is the word of the Lord. A psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy. And the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Did you notice that right at the center of this psalm, right at the heart of it, the hinge of the whole thing is a question. What is man? David's getting at, what does it mean to be human? But did you notice that in this psalm that's centered on what it means to be a human? At the very beginning and at the very end, the same call to worship. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. True self-knowledge, the only true answer to what is man, begins with Worship. And it ends with worship. You can't know yourself unless you know God and how you relate to Him. And what I want to do now is walk you through this psalm to show you how David gets us to this simple truth. Three steps that David takes will take with him. You need to see the best place to begin. That's step one. You need to see the right question to ask. That's step two. And then you need to see the stunning gift. To receive, that's step three. Three steps this morning towards knowing yourself. The best place to begin, that's step one. The right question to ask, that's step two. And the stunning gift to receive, that's step three. Let's begin in step one. The best place to begin. David begins the psalm where the Bible tells us all true knowledge begins. He begins with the fear of the Lord. Not like, I'm afraid kind of fear. Like, oh, don't hit me, Lord, kind of fear. But, but fear as in joyful wonder. Fear as in awe, as in reverence and respect at seeing who God is. It's verse 1. Oh, Lord, how, our Lord, how, how majestic is your name in all the earth, David says. And we'd be right, if we're tracking with him, we'd be right to wonder, why majestic? What have you seen, David? Where would you have us to look if we want to see what you see about the Lord and worship Him the way you do? And immediately, David shows us. David says, look to the heavens. Look at what God has done. Look what He made. Verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. The word he's using here might better be translated beauty. You've set your beauty above the heavens. Think about David Looking up at a sunset or a bright blue sky. Did y'all see the sky on the way in here this morning? A sky like that one out there. That color, that shade, David sees it. Or a dark night littered with, with points of light, too many to count. And David thinks, looking up at the heavens, if the heavens are as beautiful as that, how beautiful must be the one who shaped them, who imagined them when they weren't there yet and who put them right where they are, spread out like a blanket of color. Then verse three, David thinks about the night sky. He thinks about the moon and the stars that God has set in place. And he looks through these moon, the moon and the stars, these planets, this tapestry above him, and sees them, through them, he sees, he sees God. He sees them as the work of, of God's fingers. Not as if God has actual fingers. This is just a poetic way of of saying that that God did all this by design. It's an intricate and detailed pattern that God put there on purpose. He gave attention to this with unbelievable skill and craftsmanship. That's why David calls them the the works of his fingers. Think about David if you put verse one and verse three together. Beauty set above the heavens and the, the, the stars and the moon is the work of God's fingers. Think about David as in awe of the vastness and the intricacy of what God has made. Both, the scale of it and the detail of it, both dwarf him and drive him to worship. In verse one, he's thinking about the big sky, like out in the desert, stretching on forever. Have you ever traveled out west, or, or even just been to the beach, and you see a sky with nothing to get in your way? The kind of sky that David, as a shepherd boy, would have grown up with, out in the wilderness with his sheep. That's the sky he's thinking of. And then in verse three, he's calling attention to the intricacy of all of it. The fact that no matter how close you look, you just see more and more and more and more beauty in the details. I'm thinking of David here putting these two things together as something like what would have been experienced by an ancient person walking up on the Parthenon for the first time. You know, if you you lived your life amongst huts, that's mostly all you've ever seen, and then you take a journey into Athens and you see this huge building, immediately you're, you're dwarfed by it. You're thinking the scale of that thing, how'd they do that? Without cranes and diesel engines or anything electronic. You're stunned by by the size of it. But then you get up on it and you start really paying attention to the details. And you see that, oh, this thing is covered in statues. These statues have facial expressions. They have muscles that are in movement. Every detail of every one of these statues is so intricate you won't get to the bottom of it. And they're thinking, that's the work of somebody's fingers. I didn't just get there on accident. That's incredible. And that's how David sees the world around him. He sees through it to the God who made it all, to the God who upholds it all, to the God who's the difference between it existing and it not existing moment by moment. And that's why he says, all he can say is, Lord, how majestic is your name, your reputation, your track record, How majestic is your name in all the earth? Wherever I go, however closely I look, I see your name ringing out. I see it lifted up high. When he looked around the world, he worshiped the creator. And what David is showing us by starting here is that at the foundation of everything is seeing and knowing that God and God alone made it all. In his book on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis has this amazing little section on how unique this perspective on nature really was back then. Back then, uh, for David's neighbor, Israel's neighbors, the, the, the world that David lived in, uh, the notion of creation was really brand new. It, it wasn't something that the ancient peoples around him had much of a category for. They had a category for gods in the world. They would have looked up and seen stars and assumed them to be deities. They would have seen the sea and its power and its movement as, as a divine power that they couldn't control. They, they saw gods in the world, but they didn't see creation. This was a wild and unusual idea, and it's just as unusual today. You know, in, in our modern world, the idea that, that there aren't gods lurking in every star or every storm is is not new. I mean, that the idea that there are would just be ridiculous. Today, most of us have lived most of our lives in a in a disenchanted world, you know, one that seemed more like dead material, as one person put it, just just there. It's waiting to be harnessed and shaped by us if we can figure out how to do it. David's view, though, the Bible's view on what's going on out there in the world is wonderfully unique. It's between those options. It's its own thing. At the foundation of all true knowledge of ourselves and our place in the world, we don't see the world as full of gods that we've got to navigate. We don't see it as dead material that we're free to just shape according to our own designs. We see it as the track record of the God who made us too, and whose beauty is on display everywhere we look. The result of believing in creation, C.S. Lewis says, is to see nature not as mere datum, just facts and information and measurements and stats, but as an achievement, to see the world as an accomplishment. This changes the world from a a world full of divinities for sure, but turns it, Lewis says, into the bearer of messages. All around us, we are being spoken to by the God who made it all. That's what David sees. And the Bible is full of talk like this. How vast the heavens, how much more vast the one who measures them like the span of his fingers, Isaiah 40 talks about. How permanent and strong the mountains. How many psalms that look to God as, uh, how much more permanent and strong was he be if he could make those? Or they look at the sea, how powerful it is. How much more powerful must be the one who commands it? The, the scriptures describe him as saying, yep, you can come right there, but no further. The world is full of messages that stir up our fear of the Lord. And David is starting there. And he got there from paying close attention. We need, if if we want to be where David was, if we want to worship like he did, and and later on, if we want to understand ourselves in the way he does, we got to see what he saw in the world around us. And friends, I think one of the most practical, just get real practical here for a second. I think one of the most practical things we can do to that end, to, to see in the world what David saw, is just simply to recognize that the deck is stacked against us big time. The deck is stacked against us seeing what he saw big time. We got to be real aware of that if we want to push past it. And I don't mean just because we have a harder time seeing stars with all the light pollution in a big city. That's not what I'm talking about. The most recent stats I've seen, let me just give you one example here. Most recent stats that I've seen suggest that the average American spends nearly six hours a day on a smartphone. Now, let's just give the benefit of the doubt and assume none of that is also drive time. <laughs> so it commutes out. Let's assume they're not on there while they're sleeping. You've got to sleep at least a little bit. Hopefully not on there while they're working unless it's a work device. So there's a lot of that time. And maybe not on at least, say, one or two of the meals of the day. You add all that time together plus the six hours. That, that's a huge portion of a person's waking hours. Now, why is that important? where David spent his time looking up and out. If we're not careful, if we're not aware, we'll spend our time looking down right here. And whatever effects that might be having on our mental health, the amount of time I spend absorbed in my phone can be a huge barrier to the sort of fear of the Lord that's the beginning of knowledge. Here's what I mean. On my smartphone, I'm king. I speak the right name. I won't say it now because I don't want to activate all your phones. I speak the right name and ask what the weather is or will be, and boom! My phone tells me in a moment with a pleasant and accommodating voice and an accent of my choice. (laughs) When I need to make an unfamiliar drive, my phone does everything but turn the wheel for me. I am checked out. I'm just doing whatever my phone tells me because my phone works for me. I don't have to know where I'm going. My phone handles my PR, advises me on key decisions, entertains me in a host of ways, from music to film to books that it actually reads to me. And when I'm distracting myself with a recap of the last Braves game, my phone also subtly and not so subtly presents me with one advertisement after another, perfectly aimed at me and my desires that it could meet with the click of a button or a piece of glass. So perfectly aimed at me, it's almost like my phone's been listening to me and my inmost thoughts. On my smartphone, where so many of us are spending so much of our time, I'm a really big deal. And we can even take this with us into our excursions out into nature. uh, At the end of our time away, Uh, last week, we, we went on this annual trip we always do with Lindsay's parents down to the Gulf Coast near where we grew up. And what struck me was that near the end of the day, after a long day on the beach, if we were still down there around the time the sun starts to go down, people start showing up again. You know, there's like an evacuation of the beach, and then there's a reappearance on the beach. Only now it's not like in bathing suits, it's in like Insta-approved wear for the sunset backdrop. And we would watch like group after group, and person after person, stage shot after shot after shot of themselves in front of this amazing, I mean... We took a lot of pictures at the beach, too. I'm not, no, no judgments. I'm just observing something that happened. Over and over, getting the shot perfect with just the right pose and just the right light. It used to be people would go to a place like the sea or the mountains to stand in awe of it, to feel small up against it, to realize that we're part of a vast and wonderful world and it's a privilege to be here. But now... We're just as likely to see the sea as nothing more than the backdrop for our drama, a drama in which I'm the star. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Thank you for bearing with me on that long little, that long little soliloquy. Here's what I'm trying to get at. I don't know about you, but I cannot recall very many times where I set my smartphone down and thought, oh, Lord, how, oh my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Isn't it much more likely that what I'm picking up on from my phone, even if I'd never put words to it, just internally, by instinct, at an intuitional level, what I'm picking up on is this. Matt, oh Matt, how majestic is your name in all the earth? It doesn't have to be a bad thing to use a smartphone. I do it every single day. I'm just saying we got to be aware of how it affects us, especially, especially for how it relates to how we see ourselves. Because we can't understand ourselves truly, not as we really are, unless we know we are not the center of the universe, God is. He is vast and beautiful beyond all measure. Out there, where it counts, where David is looking at the beginning of this psalm about humanity. God is a big deal, and I'm not. Before we can know ourselves as we are, we have to see and worship him as he is. That's gonna take discipline, guys. We have to discipline ourselves to look where David looked, to see what he saw and block out what might shrink God down or puff me up. That's, that's step number one. This is, this is the, the, the best place to begin. The fear of the Lord. It leads us to step number two. The right question to ask. If you see the Lord for what he is, for who he is in the world that he's made and put you in to enjoy, when you see him and are amazed by him, it'll lead you to one specific question that's at the heart of David's psalm. When I look at your heavens, Verse 3, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, David asks, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That's the right question. My wife and I grew up together in southwest Alabama started dating as teenagers just before we started college. And to this day, one of the great unsolved mysteries in Monroe County history, at least for the period covering the late 1990s, is what in the world did Lindsay Lays see in Matt McCullough? I want you guys to picture me with a little bit more hair, but but not good hair, Uh, every bit as out of shape as I am now. And maybe even, if you can believe it, more nerdy than I am now in an environment that just highlighted the effects because there weren't that many of us down there. (laughs) I want you to imagine that and imagine Linda. I mean, she's beautiful and always has been. And back then, beautiful, beloved by everyone, popular but still sugary sweet. What is a girl like her doing with a guy like him? That was the question. David's basically asking that same question here. Why would a God like you pay attention to a guy like me? That makes no sense to David because he gets it. When you begin with the fear of the Lord, then you look closely at yourself. This is the right question to ask. Think about it. If you're at school and you need an extra sheet of paper for your assignment, you don't go to the principal and ask the principal to give you that sheet of paper. The principal's probably got more to do. You certainly don't go to the superintendent of the schools. You've probably never met them. If I have a problem with my water bill, I don't call the mayor. Much less the governor to correct it. They've got bigger fish to fry. Even if I could get through to somebody, I wouldn't get a call back. I don't expect them to call me back. It's above. They're above that type of issue. I don't blame them. I know my own limits. I know how tuned out I can be. How many of you have sat with an email waiting on a response from me for days and days and days because I'm so buried in the sermon I'm trying to write, get ready to preach here for you guys, that I just don't, I'm totally tuned out of it. I'm limited. All of us are. So imagine if God is who the Bible says that He is, He's literally got the weight of the world on His shoulders, always. He's the one who who upholds everything moment by moment. Without his attention, all of it falls apart. And, and the Bible actually says that for God, even the princes are like nothing. They don't have special access to him. The whole nations are like dust on a scale, the Bible says. And that's all just on our little planet, which is by its, the planet itself is just one of many relatively small rocks orbiting a relatively mediocre star and a average galaxy that's one of too many galaxies for us to count. And the Bible says that he put all of that exactly where it is because that's where he wanted it to go. The Bible sees all of that as the works of his fingers, obeying his commands. So how does the one who holds the stars possibly hold space for my needs? Why should I expect him to pay attention to my species, much less my life? one of the most famous critics of Christianity through history has been a philosopher named Frederick Nietzsche. Very famous critic of Christianity who just made a lot of fun of Christianity back in the late 1800s as, as our understanding of the world was getting a lot bigger and bigger and the things that Christians taught and believed just seemed to, to get more and more ridiculous to, to him. This idea that that there is a god who could both be over all of, all of the world who created it and rules over it and sustains it all and is also paying attention to us just seemed to him to be laughably ridiculous especially the notion that that god would listen to people with, with no power he talked about like the common person the peasants they think god listens to them here's what he said their ambition talking about common people it's laughable people of that sort regurgitating their most private affairs, their stupidities, sorrows, and petty worries, as if the heart of being were obliged to concern itself with them. They never grow tired of involving God himself in even the pettiest troubles they've got themselves into, he says. And and Nietzsche thought of this as a kind of gotcha moment, you know? He's pulled back the curtain and he's exposed it all for the fraud that it is. It's so foolish that you believe God really loves you and pays attention to you. But guys, the psalmist, like 3,000 years before this, has beat him to the punch. David is asking that question. It doesn't make sense to him either. It's not something any of us have a right to expect. It would be unbelievably audacious, unspeakably prideful to assume that we humans are the most interesting thing in the life of a God like that. Why would he have time for us, much less give special attention, much less be mindful of us and care for us? Are you following David's logic here? This is a psalm about what it means to be human. But he begins with the fear of the Lord. He's in awe of God as he is. He sees that through what God has made in this vast and beautiful world. And once he's looked long and hard enough at the heavens, at the work of the Lord's fingers, and then looks back to himself, back to all of us, he asks the right question, who am I? What is man that a God like this would concern himself with a guy like me? We need to take those two steps with him if we want to understand ourselves. But you cannot understand yourself truly unless you also take the final step with David. Unless you can also see with him, through him, the stunning gift that is ours to receive. In verses 4 to 8, David points to three things about what it means to be human that would be too good to be true if God had not told us the truth in his word. To be human is to be on the receiving end of a stunning three-part gift. One gift, three parts. To be human is to be cared for by God. It is to be crowned by God. And it is to be called by God to serve him. Let me show you each one in these verses. To be human is is to be cared for by God. That's the point of verse four. David is asking this right question, and it's a serious question, but as it comes in the psalm, it's also a rhetorical one. He's not wondering if God cares for us. He's not wondering if God is mindful of us. He's assuming that God is, and it makes no sense to him. He's pointing us to the fact that this God, the God whose, whose fingers put the heavens where they are, is also a God who is mindful paying attention, in other words, to our lives. But in Hebrew poetry, it's even better than that. In Hebrew poetry, often two lines will go together. The first one states a theme. The next one explains it or deepens it, clarifies the meaning of it. That's what's happening here in verse four. What is is man that you were mindful of him, that you would pay attention to him? There's different ways to pay attention to something, right? I'm paying attention to the war in Ukraine. It breaks my heart, everything I see about it. But I have precious little that I can do besides pray. That's, a, that's an attention that doesn't really lead to anything I can do with my own power. God's attention is different. David wants us to see that this that this God who is mindful of us also cares for us. He pays attention in order to, to care. What is the son of man that you care for him? Verse four. This was the message of Jesus in that passage we read earlier in our service, Matthew 6. God knows the sparrows. He knows where they are. He knows when they fall to the ground. Aren't you more value than they? He's paying attention. The the Gentiles seek after what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear. They think they're on their own in the world. Your father knows that you need all these things, Jesus says in Matthew 6. This is the message of the Bible. To be human is to be cared for by the God of the universe. To be human is also to be crowned by God with glory and honor. That's verse five. What is man that you're mindful of him, and yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor? That, that phrase heavenly beings, better translated a little lower than, than God. The reference back to Genesis 1, to the fact that God made humans at the, the, the pinnacle of all that he made and made them in his image to represent him on earth. This was simply because he chose to. He assigned to us a dignity nothing else has in all the world just because he wanted to. And then there's even more. To be human is also to be called by God, to serve him. Humans are given a job to do in the world, a responsibility over this world that God has made. That's that's verses 6 to 8. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands, You put all things under his feet, sheep, oxen, beasts of the fields, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. You put it up under humans to manage. Once again, he's got Genesis 1 on his mind. This is an incredible gift from God to be given a responsibility like this one. Did you notice? David specifically calls these things that we're given dominion over the works of God's hands. I think he's he's trying to highlight the fact that this is still God's world. This is his project. It's what he made, and it belongs to him. And he's entrusted it to us. He's not giving us a license to bleed it all dry and do whatever whatever we might want with it. Think of the world that he's entrusted to us, not as a kind of trust fund that a kid with an unlimited credit card has for for spending down his daddy's money, however he might want to. Think of it more like, like a father passing on to a child responsibility for the family business. You know, for what he built with his own hands, for what he loves, for what he cares for, for what matters to him. And he's saying, here, son, take the work of my hands. Build it up. Bring good out of it. Do with it what I would do with it. It's less like leaving a friend before you go on a trip, leaving a friend with a half-finished gallon of milk to finish off, because you can't. You may as well drink it down. And more like leaving a friend with your dog or your plants that matter to you. You know, before we left on our trip, Lindsay very carefully lined up dear friends who were willing to put themselves on the line for the sake of the plants. Because those plants matter to her. She's cultivated. They were the works of her hands. That was a dignifying responsibility to be given. That's not how we pitched it. You know, we didn't try to, like, spin it that way. <laughs> but that was a dignifying responsibility to be given. This matters to us, and, and we trust you. And that's what God has done with us. He's saying, this world is the work of my fingers. I labored over it very specifically, on purpose, in exactly this way. I made it what I wanted it to be, and it matters to me. Here, have dominion over it. That is a precious, precious gift to be given. His calling on our lives as humans is a wonderfully dignifying thing. Can you see it? Can you see the dignity that brings to your parenting as you invest in his little image bearers? Or to your job as you do whatever your work might be. Or even to your yard work. Your yard is a theater of the glory of God. When it flourishes, he's honored. You've been given a role, in other words. A real influence in something that matters deeply because it matters to God. And One of my favorite writers, Marilyn Robinson, sums it up like this. God's first act of grace toward us was to make us worthy. Of his attention and loyalty and love. We merit his attention. He pays attention to us simply because he made us worthy of it. It's grace that turns him to us and turns us out to do what he's called us to. What do we do with all this? Well, friend, first, if if you're not a Christian here this morning, uh, what I'd want you to notice here is that you're getting a taste in this psalm of one of our most central beliefs as Christians. One of the most unusual and the most essential things about Christianity is our belief that anything good we have is a free gift from God. Our lives depend completely from beginning to end, all the way through, all the way up and down, top to bottom, our lives depend on the grace of God. When you think about somebody being crowned, I wonder where your mind goes first. Mine goes like a Miss America type pageant, you know? The crown placed upon the one who earned it. Maybe a medal ceremony at the Olympics. The crown, in our world, the way things normally work, the crown goes to the victor. But in Christianity, it doesn't work like that. The crown comes by grace. It comes from the one who deserves honor and glory. It's given freely to one who deserves nothing, has no claim on him. And what began here and how God made us continues in how God redeems us from the mistakes and the sins that we've been guilty of in the lives that we've lived with the breath that he's given us. Because we haven't acknowledged him. We haven't begun and and, and concluded our lives with the fear of the Lord like we're told to. Because we haven't, we have presumed a lot on God's grace and mercy. And, And what the Bible tells us in the gospel is that the Lord responded to us, neglecting him by coming in further to us, by sending his own son to bear the penalty for our sins on the cross so that he could then give us righteousness, another crown, an even better crown that we didn't earn, place it on our head just because he's that kind of God and he's full of grace from beginning to end. We don't lift a finger to deserve it. and we, we, we would love nothing more today than to talk to you more about what this means about what it would look like for you to follow Jesus, to receive from God the kind of grace that we're depending on for anything good we have in this life or the next. We'd love to talk to you more about that. If you're a Christian this morning, then I just want to leave you with a question to reflect on and to pray over and to talk out with your friends. Here's the question I'm going to leave you with and then kind of set it up for you. Who is God to how you see yourself? Who is God to how you see yourself? And maybe here's a little practical test to to try to answer that question together. When you're feeling down on yourself, when you're struggling with feelings of inadequacy or shame or guilt, insecurity of one kind or another, wherever that might come from, where do you look for encouragement? A while back I read a memoir where a writer shared how she'd recovered from a low time by making a daily journal entry of the things that she did well that day. She called it a contributions list. She tried to, in a journal, end every day with at least three things that she did well on in that day. She said that she had, in the past, used gratitude lists to try to, to, try to encourage yourself and count your blessings when you're feeling down. But the problem, she said, is that, quote, gratitude is, is passive, It makes us feel thankful for what we receive. But contributions are active. They build our confidence by reminding us that we can make a difference. You know yourself, in other words, through through this model. You know yourself when you know what you can do. You know yourself based on what you have done. And you'll stand or fall on your own strength. But but following David this morning from Psalm 8, we, brother, sister, fellow Christians, we have to move in exactly the opposite direction. When you're feeling down on yourself, when we are wondering about ourselves and our performance, we look away from ourselves. We look to the one who's for us. And friend, the the surest sign, the the surest sign that you're growing in self-knowledge is that you are more and more and more driven to worship the God who made you and takes care of you. That's a sign that you really are getting who you are. The only thing more astounding than a God whose beauty is set above the heavens is a God like that who holds base for me and for you. That's why David, at the end of this psalm, goes right back to where he started. He started with, how majestic is your name in all the earth? He ends with, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Because he understands what it is to be human. Now we can see by what, what David means when he says, Lord, how majestic is your name. We see his glory up there. We see it set in the heavens. It's all around us. Maybe you sit back and you bow down and you just say, oh, Lord. But, but when you hear that this God is mindful, that he actually cares, that he's crowned you with glory and honor, that he's called you into a purpose, that's weighty enough to hold your whole life by inviting you into what matters to him, when you hear that, then you can say with your heart as well as with your words, not just, oh, Lord, but, but our Lord, my Lord, God, for me. It is, friend, it is an incredible thing to be human made in the image of this God. And the only right response when you get it Is to worship him. So will you pray with me now and give thanks together to God for who he is and how he's made us before we then sing one more song, celebrate it together. Let's pray. Oh Father, we honor you as the creator of everything that is and the only source of all its beauty and wonder. And we honor you as the one who's given us life and purpose. Our prayer to you is that you would help us to see what David saw so that we can worship with David's joy and rest and work in light of who you are for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.